This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to session four of Christian Foundations. Anyone been to all the classes so far? Here we go, the star students. No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to feel bad if you hadn't been to all of them, but thanks for coming. And you're almost halfway there. After this class, it'll be halfway done. So that's exciting. My, our, my prayer is that, you know, spending consecutive weeks just thinking about Christian doctrine uh, has been encouraging to your soul. I know it has been for me to study each week, thinking about what Scripture teaches on all the most important topics. Um, it really does. I, I think I've said this the first week, but sound doctrine leads to deep discipleship. Growing deeper in our faith and our walk with the Lord comes partly through studying sound doctrine. So I hope that you have found that to be true for yourself as well. So the big question that we're going to tackle today is, what does it mean to be a human being? Big question. I was thinking about um, a song by the Killers called, Are We Human? It says, are we human or are we dancer? Which I don't actually know what that means, are we dancer? But then he says, my signs are vital, my my heart is cold. I'm on my knees looking for an answer. Are we human or are we dancer? Which, yeah, again, I don't really know what the dancer part means, but you get the gist of the question, right? Like, is, is there some purpose to human life or is this, this just some big game that we're, we're a part of? So this is, this really is an existential question. It, it's a question that people search for answers for, desire answers for, religious, non-religious. People want to know, why am I here? What does it mean to be human? And thankfully, God's word answers this question for us. So the, some people talk about searching for truth, searching for our purpose as if there's some virtue in not knowing the answer and just sort of, I'm just on a journey trying to discover what my life's purpose is, and it sounds very virtuous and humble, like, oh yeah, you don't, you're not trying to claim you know what your life is all about, but really, I think that pursuit is empty and unsatisfying, and what is satisfying is turning to God's word and seeing who we are, what we're made for, and I'm thankful that we have answers for that in God's word. I'm really excited about this session, because while I wouldn't want to say oh, this is the most important doctrine. I don't think we'd want to say that about anything except for the person and work of Christ that is coming up in the next couple weeks. But I do think this is maybe the most relevant question. And what I mean by that is the most contested question today. The, the, the question where there's more um, diverse answers to this question. What we have to say as Christians on this topic is probably the most controversial of anything we would say about any other topic right now. And we'll get in more into that, into the controversy and where we must stand. But each, I really feel that each generation has its big question to, to answer. And so in the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, how we're right with God, justification, was, was 
uh, debated, hotly debated, talked about the most relevant question on, on the streets of the day. In the 20th century, maybe it was the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God. I think that the 21st century, the doctrine of humanity is going to be the doctrine that we are, feel that we have to defend our ground on most strongly. Uh, Steve Wellam is a theologian who was here with us, um, I don't know, I guess it was a year or two ago, and he made a point that stuck with me. He said, when it comes to being a Christian and defending Christian truth, he said, where the battle rages hottest, you have to stand the firmest. So where the battle is raging is where we have to stand firm. And I would submit to you that there's probably no question and biblical truth around which the battle in our culture is raging harder than on this question of what does it mean to be a human being. John Calvin says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists in two parts. So if you're gonna know two things, here, here are the things. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. The most important knowledge. Some of you guys are in school and you probably hear in school, you know, your teacher every lesson, this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing. And you hear that so many times, you think, is anything really important if every single day, like this is the most important thing I have to grasp? I don't think Calvin is overstating. Most important knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of ourselves. Uh, today, we're, our structure is gonna be a little bit different. I'm gonna teach through each of our headings, and then we'll have time for Q&A if you guys have questions. I feel like this, I have a burden for this topic to get through the material the best, the best that we can, and then see what questions you guys have coming back, instead of doing more like breaking up and you guys discussing, and then we share. So we'll just do kind of section Q&A, section Q&A, and we'll go from there. So what does it mean to be human? Um, we have four questions that we're going to seek to answer. So if you have your notes, want to take notes, this might be good to write on there. What is our origin? So where do we come from? Can't really know who you are if you don't know where you came from. What is our essence? What, what makes us uniquely human, what is our design, and four, what is our problem? So, number one, what is our origin? If you have a copy of scripture, uh, you can open up or pull it up on your phone, something like that. We're going to be in Genesis 1 through 3 mostly this morning. Somebody once said that all good theology begins in Genesis 1 through 3. And I agree with that, especially when it comes to answering this question of who are we? Genesis 1 through 3. And we'll look at different portions as we, as we come to it. So question one, what is our origin this is very basic, but sometimes the basic things are the most important things. So, where do we come from? We are created by God for God's purposes. Created by God for God's 
purposes. We have a, uh, at home, we have a three and a half year old, oh, I'm gonna get in trouble if I'm forgetting their ages, uh, two, two and a half year old and an eight month old. We're starting to do some catechism type questions, asking them questions and then they give answers to it. And the first question is, who made you? And the answer is, God made me. And what else did God make? God made everything. And they're getting it right so far, so good. You know, who, who made you? God made me. If, if I asked you, uh, what is the most offensive verse in Scripture, I wonder what you would say, thinking about all the verses in the Bible that could be offensive to our culture, what you think would be the most offensive one. I think, if you think about it, the most offensive verse is Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything in them, created you and me. And if he created us, that means he owns us. We are not our own, but we belong to God. If God created us, he has the right to define us, the right to design us, and the right to tell us how we should live. That, that, is, that is utter... Um, utterly disputed everywhere in our culture, the fact that we cannot decide for ourselves who we are to be. God made us. Genesis 1.1 reveals the most important distinction in theology, which is the creator-creature distinction. Creator-creature, which means there's the creator and there's everything else. There's a, there's a sharp line between that. There's the creator, there's everything else. We're in the everything else that God created and God owns. So, if this is true, um, some major errors to avoid when we're thinking about our origin. One is the theory of evolution. So the theory of macroevolution, which says that we evolve from primates, and it's been kind of a random, um, random natural selection through a process became who we are today, is, I think you say with confidence, an error according to Scripture. Scripture says that God created a historical Adam. Adam was a real person that God made in a real historical moment. I think Jesus believed that when you read the Gospels. Jesus talked about Adam as if he was a historical person. The Apostle Paul believed that. Romans 5, when he talked about the first man and the last man. So I think the theory of evolution is in error when it says that human beings evolved from some other creature. God, God created us. Some people will say that maybe God used the process of evolution and he kind of superintended it, so he's still sovereign over it. And I think it's difficult to square that with the narrative in Genesis 1. I, would, I wouldn't go so far as to say if somebody says they believe in evolution that they're not a Christian. I don't think that that's a first-tier issue. It's not like denying the divinity of Christ. But I would have questions and say, hey, if you read the narrative in Genesis 1, it's kind of hard to, to get there. So, I would say that's an error to, to avoid. Another is just a purpose for life that ignores or denies God. Somebody who just is maybe not an atheist, but 
in conviction, but a practical atheist, just living as if God does not exist or have a say in their life. So our origin, God created us. Any, any questions there before we move on? And, and if it's a detailed question about evolution, uh, I do want to recommend a book in the bookstore. <laughs> that's kind of a cop-out, isn't it? Like, I say the most controversial thing, and then I'm like, oh, if you have a question, you know, go read something else. Uh, but there's a big book, I put it in the Cornerstone U shelf called Theistic Evolution, that um, kind of answers a lot of questions regarding this topic. So, but does anyone, anyone else have a question? Yeah, Jacob. So the, the question was, if you're talking to somebody, is it helpful to do a distinction between macro and micro evolution? Um, I have before. I think when it comes to evangelism and apologetics, the issue really seems to be an issue of authority. So people reject God and reject his design and his word because they don't want an authority above themselves, above their own reason, above their own feelings. And so I, I tend to move toward that and try to almost go on the offense a little bit and say, really, like you think that your feelings are a good litmus test for truth. I feel, I mean, I feel differently every single day when I wake up. So am I supposed to have that as my authority for truth? Um, so that, that's, that's usually how I'll go. I, I try not to get in long debates about this, about this topic. But again, the most important thing in it is, is highlighting the fact that God is the sovereign creator of every individual who lives. He, he made us. Any, anything, anything else? Okay, question two. What is our essence? This is kind of the heart of the class this morning. What is our essence? Here's a doctrine summary. Um, God created all human beings in his image, making them of all created things most like him and endowing them with dignity and significance. God created all human beings in his image. Maybe you've heard that term before. We're created in the image of God. That's, that's the most important answer to this question. What does it mean to be a human being? Most fundamentally, it means we are created in the image of God. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says this. Let God, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So big question, what does it mean to be in the image of God? That's what it means to be human, but what does it mean to be in the image of God? I think it means a, a few things. It's a multi-layered definition. The first thing it means is that we have reason and a, a free will to, to think through things and decide things. God is like that. The other animals of creation are not like that, but we are. 
So we're, we're like God in that we are rational beings. And then two, we're also relational beings. So God is a God in relationship with himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a relational God, and God created mankind, male and female. He created us in community with one another. So that's another way that we bear God's image. But a third way that I think may be highlighted in this text is we're created with a role, a, a function on the earth. We're created to exercise dominion over the earth. So if you see, look, look, back, look back in the text. Then God said, let us make man in our image. What God was doing before that was creating and ordering the earth. He was creating light and darkness. He was creating uh, fish of the sea, birds of the air, animals of the land, ordering it all together. And then he creates Adam and Eve and puts them in a garden. And then he's basically saying, go and bear my image by doing with the rest of the world what I've already done. Namely, bringing order to a world of chaos. So the garden is a world of order and life. Outside the garden is chaos. Human beings are called to go out and bring order out of the chaos. It's a, it's a function. Um, in the Old Testament times, kings, this is really amazing, kings would place images of themselves throughout the kingdom. So let's say there was a king who ruled over, I don't know, a kingdom that's a, a, hu a huge kingdom where he couldn't physically go to every part of the kingdom and say, hey, here's my, here's my rule for you, here's my law for you. He would put up images, statues in different parts of that kingdom that would represent his rule to that area of the kingdom. And they would call them images. It's the same word used here. So I think the idea, and this is amazing, actually God in his sovereign kingship has created us as his images in the world, representing his rule, his authority, his kingship. What, so what does that mean? That, that means that your vocation, your job, your parenting, your day-to-day -day activity, whatever it is you're doing, is, is not just kind of working nine to five, trying to make a living, to quote the great Dolly Parton, but it is representing the God who brings order out of chaos. Does that, does that make sense? So God's, create, God's created us in his image to represent him, which is an amazing reality. I think all of these are partially true, these different views of we're created with reason, created with free will, created to be in relationship with each other, and created to represent God. Another important aspect of the image of God is that Jesus Christ, when he comes, Colossians 1 says, he is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, becomes the perfect image of God. Because we have all failed as images of God to reflect his rule, to bring about his order, 
and Christ has become the perfect image, and in him we can be restored. Okay, so why does this, why does this matter, the image of God? The image of God is the grounds for human dignity and respect. So let's think about this for a second. Let's assume for just a minute that the evolutionary worldview is true. Let's just assume for a moment that we're here because a random big bang occurred and life came out of that and it evolved and eventually some animals turned into human beings and eventually we'll turn into something else or we'll be extinct. Okay, let's just assume that that's true. What grounds do we have to say every human being is worthy of dignity, respect, and honor? If there's no story, no, no real purpose for us, but we're here because of a random event and we're going to be gone one day later, there's no grounds for dignity, respect, and honor. But if we're each created by a good God in his image, that means your life has dignity and purpose no matter what you do. It's really an amazing truth. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of C.S. Lewis in the uh, book Prince Caspian. Toward the end, Aslan, the lion, comes up, to, um, comes up to some of the children and says this, you come from Lord Adam and Lady Eve. That is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. I love that quote, and we'll get to why the shame because of sin in a moment. But take a second just to think about our role, our identity as human beings created by God. It's amazing. And we'll be fully restored when, uh, when Jesus returns to bear that image once again. So some major errors to avoid here, and then I do want to get to questions, because I'm sure that's maybe raising some questions. Major errors to avoid is reducing the image of God to only one theory. Some people will say, oh, it's, it's only this, or it's only that. I think there's reason to think all three of those views are important to defining the image of God. Another is believing the image of God is only a spiritual reality, so that's very, that's very important that our physical bodies are a part of who we are. Uh, Genesis 2-7 says that God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, which means there's a physical component to humanity, and then breathed in him the breath of life, which is the spiritual element to our reality. It's very important, and we'll see later when we talk a little bit about the way our culture is opposing this doctrine by denying the importance of the physical body when it comes to issues like gender and transgenderism. We're created body and soul to bear God's image. Another, yeah, degrading, devaluing the body. And another would just be what I want to call secular humanism. The kind of this idea that, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe 
as long as you're a good person. So a lot of people say, ah, I don't really believe in God, but I believe you should be a good person. And it doesn't really make a difference in, in life. I would submit that it makes a whole lot of difference whether or not you have a foundation for human dignity or not. It, it makes all the difference in the world. So, somebody's to enact this doctrine. What does it mean for your life? It means we're called to treat all people with dignity, regardless, um, yeah, regardless of age, sex, race, ability, disability. We're called to treat people with dignity and respect. Even people who disagree with us, even people who attack us, we're called to treat people with respect. Why? Because even in their unbelief, they still bear the image of the great and glorious God. So they deserve respect. Another is to reflect God's image into the world he's made. Think about your work, your daily activities in light of this great purpose to reflect God's image. Another application is that this is why, and again, this is <laughs> talking about controversial, this is why Christians are opposed to abortion, opposed to euthanasia, because, because what these things do is deny or belittle the importance of human life, human dignity. I was reading about how in, I think it was Iceland, it was one of the European countries, there is a 0% uh, Down syndrome rate. And uh, I was like, whoa, how's there a 0% Down syndrome rate? And as I read, Sadly, it's because of selective abortions in that country where if you find out your child has Down syndrome, they choose an abortion. And as I was reading that, I just think that, that's, that's evidence of a godless worldview. And there's plenty of ways that our nation has a godless worldview too. So I'm not saying, oh, like America's got it, got it right. There's plenty of ways that we don't. But as I was, I was, I was reading that, I just thought... You don't understand that every human being, even human beings with disabilities, bear the image of God and deserve dignity and respect and worth. But if you don't have that doctrine of the image of God, there's a certain logic to it, right? This is a burden to society. This is a burden to progress. That's, that's in the evolutionary worldview's goal is progress. It's not, it's not, God's, not God's design. Okay, I want to pause. That was, a, that was a lot. So, and under what is our essence? What, what questions do you guys have or thoughts or comments? want to pitch it out to you guys. Take a second and think about it too. Don't, don't be shy either. You don't, don't worry about, it's going to, bad question. Yeah, Philip. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so Philip Rack, the material scientist, by the, by the way, <laughs> in the room, um, sharing about how, how there is a connection between this theory and practice, and even in our own nation's history. I mean, I was reading a biography on Theodore Roosevelt in the early 1900s. Most people believed in eugenics in the 1900s that came out of, out of this secular worldview. And so, this is, this is very, um, 
Do what? Yeah, eugenics is, is like selectively, um, yeah, selectively ending pregnancies, killing individuals that are seen to be a plague on society. So the idea is, okay, if you have the strongest population, let them reproduce, and then the population will get stronger and stronger. But people who are a plague on society, like people with disabilities, we want to eliminate them so as to not not have that, have that issue. Which again, does the connection make sense of why the image of God counteracts that? And without the image of God, as the essence of mankind, you don't really have a leg to stand on when people are opposing that. I, I hope it shows, actually, because in our culture, you'll face a lot of people say, oh, I'm not a Christian. Christians have done terrible things. You know all the terrible things Christians have done throughout history. And I want to say, okay, well, there's been a lot of Christians for 2,000 years. Of course Christians have done some terrible things. But the world we live in, the, the reason why talking about eugenics is so, is so um, disgusting almost is because of the effect of the gospel in the first century. In first century Rome, Children, and this is not just abortion, this is a fantaside. Babies were left out, exposed to the elements to die if men didn't want them in the household. And then there's an early account of um, Christians. People were asking, who, who is this group? Who is this group, the Christians? And uh, the answer was, well, these are people who care for widows, who don't leave their children out to be exposed. Actually take those children in and keep them. So don't, don't, let people, don't let people rattle you with, oh, Christians have done terrible things. Sure, that's true. I, w- I wouldn't just say, oh, no, Christians haven't done any bad things throughout history. But really, Christians have done some wonderful things. Hospitals are the work of Christians. I, I mean, it's really amazing. And the most violent century on record is the 20th century, which is largely the role of secular atheist regimes um, like the Soviet Union and China. And, and so I, I just, I just want to help you a little bit in pushing back against this narrative that Christianity is so bad for the world. It's, it's not. There are issues, but Christianity has been a force for good in the world. Yeah. Mm. That's good. Mm. Yeah, that's great. That's great. It is. A, it's a funny. Did you guys? Were you guys able to hear what she was saying? That it's a. It's a funny thing to be. Yeah, progressive people. Someone sort of progressive, and I'm not. And I hope you understand. I'm. I'm not. This isn't a political discussion. A progressive conservative. I, I mean, people who are just opposed to the biblical teaching on on either side of the aisle. But if you don't have a fixed truth, a fixed good that you're aiming for, how can you even define progress? Because it's all, it's all random, right? But oftentimes, Christians are accused of being kind of our heads are in the sand while everyone else is progressing. That's a great question. What are you progressing toward? What's your goal? Why is that your goal and not something else? We would say, well, humanity 
ought to reflect the character, the love of God, right? That's, that's stable. That doesn't change. So we have a ground to stand on. Very good. Any, anything else? Any other questions on this topic? It's, uh, it's helpful to see, too, how, how much doctrine helps in practical real-world discussions with unbelievers. So if you're, I know there's some college students here, high school students, middle school students. Maybe you're, maybe you're interacting with people right now who have opposing, or maybe colleagues at work. Um, I want to encourage you to, you can have real discussions about these things um, and have answers to these questions that might open up a door for witness. Maybe not. Maybe some people are, they're, they're so opposed, no amount of reason will open up a door. But sometimes you can lodge in a little wedge in the door, right? Maybe, maybe it opens up the door just a little bit to, to talk. Okay, we should move on to um, question three. What is our design? So, we're going to get more controversial. Okay, what is our design? We are created as men and women. So, doctrine summary. God created men and women equal in value and dignity, but different in role and function. Okay, I'm going to write that on the board in case you want to write it down. God created men and women equal in dignity and worth. Okay, one point. Different in role and function. That's my shorthand way of defining complementarianism. Have you ever heard that term before? Our church believes in complementarianism. The idea that men and women are equal in dignity and worth, different in role and function. That men and women complement one another like, um, like puzzle pieces. Um, imagine if you had a puzzle where every piece was exactly the same. No, no differences in the edges, no differences in the design. It's not a very, it'd be an easy puzzle. You know, you just have, you just kind of have square pieces and you put them all in. Actually, I kind of like that puzzle. It'd be a little bit easier to work on, but it wouldn't be a very good puzzle, right? There's not a beauty in the design of the puzzle, putting things together. God, God has created men and women this way. Every, every human being is created and engendered by God. This is a, there's a book by a lady named Abigail Favale called Genesis of Gender. Um, she, she's a Roman Catholic, so I don't agree with everything she says about doctrine, but she wrote this book on gender, and uh, she was studying feminist studies and then uh, came into the Church of Rome and has had a total change in her outlook and perspective. She says this, Genesis uniquely foregrounds the importance of the male-female relationship. There is no hierarchy of value, no dynamic of superiority and inferiority. Sexual differentiation is not a mishap, but a cause for celebration and wonder. The difference is good, our bodies are good, and both are integral to the created order, which is good. I love that. Our maleness and femaleness is essential to our calling to bear God's image in the world. 
And I do want to just make an application, and we'll have to speed up a little bit. Again, to, to preteens, teenagers who are here, um, and to, to all of us, but I think my, my heart is especially thinking about that. There, there are so many voices that would say that, you know, being a boy, being a girl, and really thinking about that, considering that is is wrong, or you should just really go with whatever you feel on the inside. From God's word, I just want to stand on this truth that being a boy, becoming a man, being a girl, becoming a woman is a good thing. That is a good thing. That is God's creation, God's design, and something that wants to twist that or distort that or say it doesn't, doesn't really matter if you're a girl, doesn't really matter if you're a boy, you can just kind of do whatever you want, whatever you feel, that is wrong. And that leads to destruction. Men and women are equal in dignity and worth. And that's often what people who oppose this doctrine attack. They'll say, well, if you're saying, oops, if you're saying that there's a difference, that means you're not equal. It's not true. There can be a difference in role and function and being equal in value. I can't go into all of the texts that support this, but Genesis 2, 18 through 15, talk about the design of the husband and wife and their role together in God's good design. Ephesians 5, 22 through 27, talks about the role of husband and wife together, living out that calling a great book, again, a great book on this topic. If you're interested, it's Kevin DeYoung's book, Men and Women in the Church. We have it in the bookstore. I would highly recommend it. So just a few errors to avoid, and then we'll, we'll close with our last, last point. We don't want to be too specific about rules for men and women as far as like what men should do, women should do. There is a posture, there is a design, but where the Bible doesn't give specific rules, we don't want to give specific rules saying, oh, this is exactly what you should do or shouldn't do. Um, not taking another error, and this is probably the major one we face, is not taking the differences seriously enough or seeing them as unfortunate. And another, again, would be the transgender ideology that says gender is just a social construct that can be changed based off of internal feelings. So gender, being a boy, being a girl, is not a social construct. It's rooted in God's design in Genesis 1 through 3. That's, that's critical to remember. Okay. I'm not going to get into the doctrine of sin so we'll have to maybe push that to next week because it's 9.40. And I do want to have some time to take questions here. So we'll end here on engendered by God. Yeah, and we'll get to, and I'll, I, might send out, I might send out my notes. So if you want to study some on the doctrine of sin, we can, we can talk about that. So, so questions, questions related to that last point or, or just the class, the class today in general. Yeah, that.
Right. It's very good. Yeah, Pat was just saying that it goes back to the issue of authority. Human beings, we are created by God, under God's authority. And if you hear nothing else, just remember that, that God has the right, not just the right, but what he says about us is how we're designed to be. So the more we push against that, the more destruction we're going to find in our lives. Right? It's like going against the grain of the way you're made. It's like, you know, if a somebody designs a microwave, you would trust that person to know how the microwave is supposed to function and you would listen to him, right? That's what we have in scripture. Your, your life is designed by God and therefore, not perfectly, it's not saying no suffering will come or no issues will come, but if you submit your life to him and to his design, I think you'll find this is good. This is a good design. Yeah, Vinny? That was a tricky topic. Vinny was asking to talk more about euthanasia. And yeah, I don't want to, yeah, I'm hesitant to just off the cuff kind of, this is, this is what I think about euthanasia. But I do think, I would lump it together with abortion. Not that they're exactly the same, they're not, but there's a same, there's a same principle that underlies it. It's, it's a dehumanizing practice that, I mean, was reading again, and probably probably reading too much about what's going on in other other places. But I think in Canada, there's a program called Made Medical Assistance in Dying, and um, it's a whole program that helps people who want to die. And it's really it's really sad, but people who have um, issues of depression and anxiety and want to, you know, issues that we think, wow, if we just can help these people and counsel these people, uh, but it's really yeah, it's really twisted. So. Yeah, Gary. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it's not, it's not totally exactly the same, but I would push back. There's there one more question in the back. Yeah. That's a good question. So the question was, if, if the church is the salt of the world, how much should we be involved in issues like if you see an issue in the pharmaceutical industry or whatever, politics or whatever it may be? I think that, Lord willing, we're going to have a class in the fall on politics. Talks about kind of how Christians will engage in politics. Um, I think I would be very hesitant to say it should definitely look like this one thing or that you should definitely, you know, pick up a sign and go and protest or something like that. I think there's a lot of Christian liberty there is what I would say, is that God calls us to 
love our neighbors as ourselves. God calls us to bear his image. But what exactly that looks like in every specific issue is different. And, and I would say this too, that if you treat every single issue there is as I have to dedicate my life to solving this issue, you're not going to have time in the day. <laughs> you know, there, there's so many things. I think there's liberty for some Christians to say, hey, I'm really concerned about this issue, so I'm going to dedicate time and attention to it. And other Christians say, I'm really concerned about this issue. And I mean, I can feel like, wow, I've got three little kids at home. And I, you know, I just, I want to, I want to like be a family that honors God. And I think that's, I think that's good too. So I, I wouldn't want to feel any pressure to, you have to go and change the world in, in sort of this cultural sphere. But at the same time, uh, feeling like, yeah, if you feel a burden for this specific issue, being able to respond to it. So yeah, I think that's what I would say is that the church's role as an institution is to preach the gospel disciple the nations, to be on mission, like we're learning about in Acts. But individual Christians within the church can find all sorts of callings to go and be salt and light in that way. I think that's what I would say. All right. Thank you very much. That'll be time. We'll, we'll wrap up, and you guys will be back together next week. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God to see who God is, and to live in light of his word and gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash U.